It's January 10th, 2023, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines. But first, let's do a little bit more on what to expect on the appropriations front. So Matt put together a nice little chart here on increases to the procurement accounts from the in the FY23 appropriations relative to the request. And surprise, surprise, of course, aircrafts come way out on top, but of course, they're by far the largest procurement accounts when you put them all together from the services anyway. So that's $6.8 billion increase there for aircraft. Uh, Army saw a 26% increase, mostly in legacy type of stuff and mods. Air Force 17% and Navy 11.5. Uh, apparently, the appropriators and, and the Armed Services Committees denied the shutdown of the F-18EF production lines. So it looks like Boeing um, there in, in St. Louis is going to have both the F-18 and the F-15 going. So good for them. A third of the Marines budget for procurement is going to F-35Bs. That's quite substantial. Um, any big takeaways here for you in, in terms of uh, procurement accounts? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think we're too surprised uh, by, by having a, you know, additional destroyer um, uh, and, you know, a bunch of F-35s, I think, uh, you know, bringing, bringing the F-18 uh, line back on, you know, there was a bunch of F-18s that were added. So, you know, maybe I'm not surprised about that. I think there's still a lot of constituencies out there for that. Um, and, oh, well, the uh, one, one maybe one is that, uh, you know, they still, Congress still sees a, a place for the LCVs. So not, not willing to give up on, on that, uh, that platform yet. Um, so you mean maybe, LCS? I'm sorry, LCS. Yeah, sorry, we're talking about USBs. LCS, so the Navy might have to find a way to repurpose those. Um, I don't know what they can what they can do there, but it uh, looks like Congress says, you know, you've invested all this, you, we spent this money, uh, not ready to get rid of get rid of those yet and retire them. So, so yeah, no, not not too many big surprises, things that maybe we didn't, you know, either expect to see coming or not shocked by, but. Um, but yeah, definitely some some good plus ups and uh, on the aircraft side and ships. Yeah, and the ships. So yeah, you got the one extra destroyer, which everyone was kind of shocked about, and then they they added it back in. So that was probably about half of that, right? So ships went up four billion. A destroyer yeah. is about two billion. Mm -hmm. I bet you there was a lot of that talk that was like Congress really wanted to actually plus up ships a lot more, but it seemed like Gilday, um, CNO Gilday, was like. Well, pump the brakes, you know, industry capacity can't really take all that much, which is kind of, you know, my one of my fears is just like, well, there's all this demand signal. Why isn't industry, you know, really putting money into building out additional capacity? Or are there other small shipyards that could potentially do something? Maybe this is the time to, you know, plus up a little bit on the unmanned. But then there's the fears of we're just talking about this. The unmanned ships are way not uh, mature enough from a propulsion perspective to go the certain the, the requirements of the number of days without anyone touching it. So no one's willing to kind of put money into the unmanned ships as well. So it seems like they're just kind of stalled out there. Oh, yeah. The, the other thing on the ship one was um, the Marines did do pretty well. Um, they got uh, they got all the stuff they asked for and they got their their LPD um, that the, the Navy didn't quite want. So, so yeah, it looks like uh, Marines, Marines also did quite well on the procurement side. So, but missiles and ammunition 
<laughs> did not, which was, <laughs> what was your perspective on that? Because I was particularly surprised on the missiles front. I don't know if like the supplementals had uh, additional stuff going on there, or maybe the, uh, that there's another supply chain problem there, but you know, they're just not really producing the amount of missiles. And of course the FY 23 budget hit before and was planned well before uh, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but we, we're seeing the kinds of expenditures going on there and we do not have the stockpiles necessary for kind of a major war. And that's a big signal to me, more so than just the numbers of platforms, the numbers of munitions do you have to kind of stick it out for a longer term? Yeah, so looking through it, my take is that I think the services, even though you're right that the Ukraine thing, uh, I think they had already gotten the message, you know, in the last couple of years that, they needed to make more investments in, you know, Jasms, Elrasms, and, uh, you know, Patriots and, uh, you know, Tomahawks and, and different things. So I, I, I believe that, that they had already sort of got into a pretty good place. I want to do more analysis on, on, on this over the last couple of years with regards to the different accounts, but I think they're pretty much close to maxing out. And I think that's why you didn't see bigger plus ups and missiles, but what you did see is, um, I, I forget the exact number I didn't have in front of me, but I think it was like six or 700 million in um, industrial capacity sort of increases in modernization. So I think uh, I think the Congress was willing to put money. And so that's why they put it in those accounts to see how they could improve, um, how that money could be used to improve the capacity. There was specific language on the ammo front um, for, for some of the ammo ones about the organic workforce and trying to make sure like, that they're not downsizing any of those people that, that those are, those things are getting resourced appropriately. So I think the focus was there with Congress. I don't think they meant to do any harm to the missile ammo accounts. Uh, I just think there wasn't a lot of room for them to add. I think they knew what the numbers were. So, yeah, it, I mean, that was the, the good point on adding to the industrial capacity there, but you know, I think they, I think they added something like 30 Tomahawks, but across the, the front of other cruise of like all the cruise missiles, basically it was just like, we'll give you the requests. And the request mm-hmm. was, you know, a few hundred overall, if you add up all the cruise missiles put together. So, so yeah, I mean, maybe they are maxed out. And there was some, there was an article recently, I think that we saw that was just like, Congress is not happy. And I think it was like a wall street journal thing. And I think they were like pointing to not being in favor of consolidation because they saw that industry was not able to absorb the kinds of money to expand the capacity. I don't know if those things are necessarily linked, you know, but you know, maybe they are. Yeah. I'm not sure they're linked either. Cause I mean, it depends on, you know, if you don't know how to build the thing um, and it's a sophisticated cruise missile, I mean, these are not easy things. There's a lot of like, you know, very highly classified stuff with each of them. So you need people cleared at the right levels. And there's a lot of like, you know, technology that is like proprietary and stuff. So I'm not sure that they just could have like, you know, slapped, uh, you know, oh, hey, you know, you, you got a, you got a facility there. Here, here, go stand this thing up real fast. Um, I don't think I don't think any of that would have been responsive. So I'm with you. I'm not sure M&A is the problem here. I think it's the what the CEOs of these companies are basically saying, which is I don't trust that the government is going to buy these things in perpetuity. And I haven't been making investments because of that. 
So we kind of did this to ourselves over the years where we would bounce up and down. Literally, if you look at the procurement accounts on, you know, through the last like 20 years, it would go up and go down, up and down. It was very unpredictable and the companies hated it. And they, they responded the way that a company typically will, which is like, I will, I will, I will plan to the bare minimum and, you know, to the maximum that's allowed in the contract, uh, you know, and I, I will support that, but I won't be investing in, in anything else. So I think now we're at the point where we have to show them, no, we are committed. We're going to be buying this for many years into the future. So get that capacity back up, train your people, you know, get all that stuff in place. So, Yeah, it seemed like, yeah, again, like when they surged the kind of 2018 where Congress was like, man, we need to support, you know, there was that big requirement losing a lot of uh, munitions that were going off in uh, in the Middle East. Um, and then it, it just dove again, right? It became the bill payer right again. And industry mm-hmm. kind of was like a bait and switch kind of thing. And so they were like, uh. so maybe, you know, like with the critical munitions acquisition fund where the Pentagon was like, hey, can we get some flex? We don't know exactly what's the mix of JASMs and LRASMs and, you know, the rest of these. Uh, can we get a little flexible fund? It seemed like co- Congress was like, uh, no, <laughs> we're going to tell you where you're going to put that. And it seemed like they... They really did try to target that towards more industrial um, capacity and, and workforce types of things as well. So, um, but again, like if I guess, I mean, the department has really backed itself into a place in terms of management to where industry is just not going to invest in the capacity. And like if they're not going to be willing to, you know, take money out of outputs and force structure to enable the, that kind of capacity and just pay for the damn overhead, um it's just not going to happen. Well, I, I am curious because if you look at the amount of money that went to DPA, DPA actually took a bunch of cuts because they, I guess they sat on money, didn't expend it. So now there's a new office that stood up in OSD that looks like it's going to be more focused and hopefully more efficient at getting that money out. But I'm not sure if this industrial based money, because it was, it was not put into the DPA account, it was actually put into the primary account um, at the service level is broken down into the service level. So I'm not sure if it's going to be treated like DPA where they can use like how much discretion they have. Um, like, can they hand that money off like they do with DPA and say, um, yeah, go use this to build another production line or something like I would hope so, but I am kind of curious to see how that works. Um, you know, who do they decide, you know, to give it to, um, do they have to, you know, do any kind of competition for who wants to stand up another line, you know, things like that. So um, it will be interesting. That'll be interesting to watch this year. They see how the money gets spent. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's interesting. Cause when you look at the history of mobilization, it's just like the facilities are basically there, you know, it's just like, you just got to get the, the machine tools up and, and spin all that kind of stuff up in the floor space. That's already there. It's not like we're going to be building all these new companies necessarily for this stuff we don't have the time right if we need to get stuff out 27 28 it's like we got the companies we got the we got the most of those systems we got to surge those and do the rest right we got to do the non-traditional and the loitering munitions and that kind of stuff as well but you can't just like um presume that it's just going to fix itself so and but no one again like the republicans kind of coming in here um it seems like they want to some of them, the, the more isolationist ones, want to kind of knock the budget back down to 2022 levels. Um, so, and that would be kind of detrimental to this whole kind of idea of 
requirements are growing, not, not shrinking. And if anything, you know, we need to be, you know, investing in that capacity and industrial kinds of things as opposed to, um, you know, taking a hiatus from it. But, you know, that's from our perspective because we're, you know, kind of defense folk and other people have different perspectives. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and they're, you know, if that does happen, I mean, it, it probably will hit for structure because some of these modernization programs, like there's, there's a lot of must do's out there. So that, that'll be some tough, that'll be some tough trade-offs. Uh, so you want to take us through some of this uh, innovation fund findings that you also found out? Well, you're the Raider master, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give the, the high level um, on the, so yeah, so there was, there were a couple of things that, that were requested um, in terms of innovation funds. And these are ones that um, sit at the OSD level uh, there's one that was called defense modernization and prototyping. There was about 142 million in, in that account. And this is at the BA3, right? So if you're not tracking on the budget activities, BA3 is that it's not an advanced prototype, but it's an early prototype. Um, so at that stage, you're not typically uh, taking out and shooting anything, but you're doing, you're doing stuff in the labs, doing stuff, uh, you know, test benches and, um, you know, modern sim and things like that. So some more lower scale prototyping. Um, but yeah, so defense modernization and prototyping technology innovation was another fund, uh, about $109, $110 million. And then your your joint capability technology demonstration, that one, JCTDs, that's been around for a long time, had $114 million in it. So Congress, uh, essentially, uh, maybe they were getting tired of parsing uh, the differences between these different funds. Um, but they decided to combine them into one called a Defense Innovation Acceleration. Uh, I really like the title. And uh, so it did take a little bit of a cut because it went from about $365 million, which had been requested. Uh, but when combined with this new fund and some of the marks, it dropped down to about 293.5. So it took, uh, it took about $70, million, $70 million off the top there. Um, and then moving into BA4, this is your more advanced prototypes. Uh, we're actually going to take aircraft out, fly them around, do experiments. Uh, the rapid prototyping program come, came back um, and it was asking for about 180 million. It got about 110. So it took a little bit of a cut. That other money went to Raider. Um, OSD in 2023 had expected the Raider funds to be at the service, lo service levels, which they were. Um, and they didn't actually request any money at the OSD level, uh, waiting for 24 to roll around. Um, but the Congress actually did move 25 million of the rapid prototyping money into that Raider money for OSD. So that goes to joint staff and um, ANS and, and RNE. So, so yeah, so interestingly that uh, you know, OSD is getting money, but more for the management of it uh, to have people that can, can manage those programs. 25 million seems like a lot, but um, I, I guess they have a plan for it. But then, then Eric, like you said, there was 358 million that was actually in the service accounts, and you did uh, some great forensics on where that was at, and it looks like 30 some percent or so actually did get cut at the service level. Hard to get precise because some of them are smaller accounts, but uh, it definitely took a big hit on the Raider accounts, um, which were per which were which were projects that had already been approved and started. So I am curious to see the impacts. Um, of those, uh, of, of how that impacts the execution of those, those accounts. Um, and then lastly, um, our favorite, the Accelerate Procurement Fielding of Innovative Technologies, AppFit, uh, asked for 100 million, they got 150. So, so a little bit of extra love for, for the Procurement uh, Innovation Fund. Yeah, I, I would just note there on the, uh, the Raider front, 
OSD did actually request 70 million and they got cut down to the 24 million. Um, the joint staff also had a 10 million in there. And then the services had the rest and it looked like the army kind of got nicked. But for the most part, you know, the Air Force was made whole and the Marine Corps were, were made whole. It seemed like they had better plans when you looked at the, the budget justification docs. The army got cut from 106 to 77, unjustified requests. And it was just like when you looked at what they were requesting there, they're just like, well, broad category, TBD, uh, we'll, we'll determine what kind of who's going to get the money and and uh, what kind of contract type it was. Whereas, you know, the Marine Corps is a little bit more specified. So maybe, again, Congress just likes to be like, well, does it look like you know exactly what you're going to do? And if, if not, you know, then that's a problem. And and so the Raider, it's kind of interesting, right? Because FY24, it's supposed to be rapid defense experimentation reserve, a reserve and rapid, but really it's kind of going through the same acquisition process where it needs to go through the palm and the defense management action group and all that kind of stuff. So it really, they're, they're probably going to be working on the FY25 stuff pretty soon. So if you're not already in the FY24 budget in those program lines, you basically out, you, like if you're a new company and you have the cool thing, you're not going to get there until 2025 at the earliest. So that may or may not be an issue. I'm not really sure. But yeah, overall Raider cut 358 to 273-ish, about 24% cut is what I would estimate. You can check that out on the blog. I kind of go line by line there. Um, and yeah, and then the AppFit thing is also interesting. I'm glad they plussed it up, but hopefully this uh, the the continuing resolution did, doesn't impact it as much as it did last year where they got the money pretty late. And one of the criteria that Heidi Shu was talking about was, well, you already have to have an existing contract capable of taking on procurement funds uh, for this program. Because, of course, AppFit, the Accelerate the Procurement and Fielding of Innovative Technologies, it was in the BA8, the colorless money kind of thing, and they moved it over to a procurement line item. But this is really for like kind of high technology readiness level types of stuff that are ready to get fielded. And then, But that's the problem, right? Like, well, it has to be for a company that has less than $500 million of cumulative sales to the Department of Defense. It has to be kind of a non-traditionally, you know, company-ish. But those, like how often or how many of those companies are going to have something that can get onto contract within a couple months because you're going to lose that money at the end of the fiscal year. So they had to get it, you know, onto something super fast. So that was kind of, you know, kind of a sad reality, I guess, you know, right? Like the appropriations drops, you get it late. By the time the money flows down to the OSD or whoever's going to actually execute this thing, it's months later than when the CR ended um, the continuing resolution. And then they got to get that thing on contract super fast. And so they got to kind of like target people who are already, you know, pretty mature if they already have kind of like a procurement, you know, contract ready vehicle. And so, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I wonder, you know, what are the cool technologies or cool efforts that kind of dropped off because of that requirement? Yeah, there were a lot of smaller Mark, so it's yeah. I don't know where the fifty million got moved from, but there was there was enough marks where that fifty million was in the noise. Um, but no, I hear you on that. That it is kind of interesting. Um, 
you know, if you look at the projects they've done, most of them are smaller. Uh, and I think, I think that's sort of going to have to be the way that goes. Cause you, you just can't for one, it's only 150 million. Um, you can quickly get there with, you know, anything of the decent size, you can start to get there pretty quick with, a, with the, at that amount. Um, so, so yeah, it's going to be probably best for smaller things, which was, is too bad because it'll still be impactful, but it won't be the, you know, it won't really solve, I think to our article last year, <laughs> it still won't solve the, the core issues that we have with, with these innovation funds is they are not a substitute for budget flexibility. So all right, let's move on to top stories of 2022, U.S. Navy acquisition. And so I'm just going to read down some of the, the big things that USNI News kind of took away from Navy acquisition this past year. First, the Navy, as we talked about, requested two DDG-51 destroyers. Congress obviously added that third. DDG-X, the next generation destroyer, could cost between $3.1 to $3.4 billion per hull. We'll see about the affordability there. Uh, but that should be coming towards the end of this decade. Navy sought to end the LPD production line. Marines put LPD 20 or 33 at the top of the unfunded priorities list. And so that's what you were, you were talking about. They kind of got what they needed. They requested there in terms of amphibs. Marines want 35 light amphibious warships. Navy's calling for 18. We'll see kind of how that gets hammered out. Um, at the OSD level, but none of that's getting procured yet, of course. Uh, GD laid the keel of the Columbia class. So those things are getting built, and I think the second one's already getting funded, if I'm not um, mistaken. But there's a lot of shenanigans going on in terms of they requested money, they had to reprogram that money, and now I think that money's coming back. So um, Columbia class is underway. That's the Navy's number one priority. Navy also asked for $114 million for SSNX. That's the follow-on to the Virginia class. Estimated $5.6 billion to $7.2 billion per hull, so a little bit more expensive. CVN-79 in the final stages of construction and CVN-80 in the early stages. So that's the second and third of the class of ship for the Gerald Ford. Navy asked to end the FA-18EF production line. Congress said no. <laughs> Navy and JAD. I, I heard that... Navy, they, they pronounce, I think the Air Force is NGAD, Next Generation Air Dominance. The Navy has their own Next Generation Air Dominance, but they call it NJAD. Is that right? Yeah, I've heard that too. That's kind of funny. I don't know Why? if it's purpose. To, I, it might just be to differentiate it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's uh, classified three years in a row. So not much seen there. But the Air Force, we do know, I think it's about 1.4 or 1. It's in the low 1 billions that they're they're funding that thing this year, right? Um, I can't. I have to. I have to pull it up. But yeah, it's definitely getting a lot of money in it. It's, it's more than a billion. A lot of money for for. Yeah, it's it started back in two thousand. I want to say like seventeen. It started getting like half a billion a year, and then it started to ramp up to a billion, and then yeah, so it's on the upper trajectory. It's that's it's been multiple years that it's gotten that much money. So there's some real stuff happening with that with that program. Hopefully, yeah. But I think we're pretty clear that the Will Roper. Digital Century series is basically over and NGAD is one fighter that will get fielded in 2030 and it will be another monolithic kind of thing, even though it's supposed to have the collaborative combat aircraft drones that it will manage, but it's it's going to be a big, exquisite platform. 
Well, I mean, they do, they, they do say a family of systems. Um, I think they're still using that term. Um, I think there's a, a couple of different opinions about like, does that mean like two or three completely separate aircraft for different things? Probably not. That seems like a, a real stretch, but it might be, and this is what Dr. Roper had sort of teased many, many years ago about, well, maybe, um, actually you can see it in the video that he does. There's some like glimpses of it where maybe you can, um, uh, take the wings off. Maybe there's different wing configurations. Uh, maybe there's different sensor configurations like U2. Uh, so maybe it's a, a very modular. And so it's a family of systems in the sense that you have different configurations that you can put it in for different mission sets. So different yeah. wings. I've, I've never heard of that. I mean, that's like the wing is the aircraft. <laughs> like, that's pretty significant. Yeah. I mean, there, there was, there was talk about, um, about like different different things that you could do to the characteristics of the aircraft. So if it was like more high altitude or something, I guess you could maybe put on different wings. And uh, yeah, I, it, it's definitely complicated. And I'm not sure that that is the vision, but you know, they still do say family of systems. So I'm not sure if that just means one fighter and one wingman, or you know, maybe they are kind of pushing the boundaries on you know this reconfigurable kind of uh, type of aircraft that can do different types of missions with different characteristics. Yeah, I think uh, the way Brian Clark over at Hudson was talking about it, he was like, we need to talk less about family of system, more of team of systems. Yes. Yeah. It really felt to me like there's just one big platform, and then they're thinking about different types of collaborative combat aircraft that team with it, and that can end up teaming with the B-21 or not, or be handed off between them potentially. Uh, but it really feels to me like the century series idea is long gone. Like they're not going to, even if it, they have some kind of modularity aspect of it, it seems like it would be still held by one company. Right. And maybe it's not going to be like, they're going to be like turning over production lines with new digital engineering models and doing a batch of 50 or 70 or 200 or whatever, and then moving on. I, I think I, I suspect there might be more than one vendor um, for NGAP. Uh, but yeah, just a, just a sense, just because they've done a lot of different projects and I, I've never been written. So I'm not revealing anything that I actually know, but, but they, you know, they, there, there was a lot of different activities going on. And so, um, there might be pieces, different pieces of it that are being done by different vendors that the government is contracting with. And so now whether there's like one platform integrator, um, I'm not sure about that, but I, I suspect there's there's more than the one vendor playing in that. There, for one, there's just too much money, and so I think um, I think they'd have to spread it around. And also, they ha there has to be considerations for the industrial base. We, we can't rely on one uh, on one company to do um, to be responsible for that. You know, that's that's like that's like the that's like the F-35. You know, going forward, I think we've sort of learned, or I hope we've learned our lesson that we should have more than one vendor that can provide a, you know, a fighter jet. So. Yeah. yeah but like we'll when you lose one, when you lose one major program, like if you, if you're a major company and you lose one program, you're going to be the subcontractor on that program. You know, like. Yeah, Boeing you don't want it. to be though. You don't yeah. want, I mean, it, it creates a lot of inefficiencies. Um, yeah. Like Northrop and Lockheed are very, tightly coupled they were they started actually they started out as partners on the 35 program 
and they couldn't quite manage it as partners. I, I don't know if it was just the, you know, personalities or the management structures didn't jive, but uh, then they eventually became, Martha became a sub to Lockheed. Um, but I, I think, uh, I hope that NGAV is working to build out the industrial base so that we have more options. So I'm actually a little bit encouraged that maybe there is some type of family of systems. Maybe it's like there's more than one EW capability or different types of, capabilities that can be used, you know, different types of radars. Like I, I hope they're doing some smart stuff with that and not just giving it to one vendor. I, given how many different projects were, I suspected there was more than one contractor involved, but I guess we'll, we'll see in the future here in the 2030 or I guess when that first rolled out. All right, let's keep moving. Navy Seahawk helicopters as the Navy's version of the Black Hawk replacement still in requirements. They're looking at manned and unmanned versions of that. Future of medium USV unmanned surface vessel is uncertain, uh, but the USV Mariner was recently launched. I got a nice little tour of that, which was pretty cool. Uh, 30-year shipbuilding plan has 316 ships on the low end, 367 on the high end. So kind of navigating that 355 that's been around forever, but Battle Force 2045 and their 500 ship fleet, you know, I think that's still what people dream about. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see about that. Um, here's another, here's a, here's an interesting one. Josh Wolf's war Lux capital founder blazes a controversial path in defense tech. And so this one is really about Josh Wolf over at Lux capital VC investor and his kind of like, I don't know, path to getting the VC community into, you know, funding defense tech and, and, and certain firms. And apparently he goes out and like builds a lot of relationships around the Pentagon and in the fleet and, and different things. And, Here's one of his quotes, which was pretty good. If I were an enemy mole in the Pentagon, instead of stealing anything that you guys are developing, I would make sure you did nothing to your systems because they're that bad. <laughs> and yeah. so, I mean, that's that's pretty that's pretty uh, you know, in terms of what he's trying to say there. And I think folks in Congress are even saying the same thing. It's like, you know, we should give we should put our acquisition system and make it secret so they think it's something that's important and that they should adopt so we can screw them over you know like uh but this article really for me was more about like a vibe shift than like i, I didn't really learn any new information really even though it's from this website called the information but you know it's really more about this vibe shift about like vcs warming to defense and maybe that has to do with this confluence of the the you know mega cycle downturn in terms of interest rates rising, you know, equities kind of going down and then put that together with what's going on in Ukraine. And I think the only two really kind of good sectors that have been performing recently have been kind of defense and energy, right? So maybe they're looking at that. Uh, but, but Lux Capital, by the way, did dabble in crypto and they were an investor in FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. And he says, you know, shame on them for fraud um, and lying. But there's also a due diligence aspect of that as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, the one thing that kind of pisses me off, and I guess it, I don't want to blame media because maybe they just don't know, but they kind of talk here like, oh, Kymeta satellite company scored a five, 950 million contract. Hadrian, um, well, they didn't say the contract number, but Anduro got an over $1 billion contract. And it's like, yeah, but we know that those were contract ceilings. We don't, and the 950 yep. million one, 
everybody and their and their brother got you know 950 million dollar contract from ABMS. How many actually got like significant obligations put onto contract? So I want to see like how how much revenue did they get? I don't care about like contract ceilings necessarily, but that's always just something that gets thrown around in these articles that I think gives you know readers the wrong perception of. You know, one thing in like the recent podcast I did with Trey Stevens and, and Matt Seckman over and Durrell, they're like, okay, yeah, there's the sharps, right? The, um, the, what does the S stand for? I mean, what's the acronym? Uh, sharp. Sharp. So sharp is the new, uh, it's like the acronym, you know, like Fang, like Facebook, Apple, Netflix, oh, Google. Oh, yes. So yeah, sharp yeah. is the new one for defense and it's, it's SpaceX, Hadrian, Andurl, Rebellion, Palantir and Epera. So those are like the the billion dollar valuation defense tech kind of companies that have arisen. But when you put all of their revenue together, it's just like a tiny fraction of of yeah. like what a regular prime is going to be getting, um, even if they do get relatively good contract ceiling. So it's not like these companies are really out of the woods, even though they have relatively high valuations. There's still a lot of growth to go for them to kind of justify that. And they're, they're, they may be doing very good stuff, but um, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a really good uh, line here from John Doolin at, at Modern AI. And he says, I had a VC tell me that DOD doesn't care about your technology. They just care about your political connections. If you don't have that, we're not invested in you. And maybe there's a truth to that, right? Because it's like, you know, as Josh Roy was talking about, you know, it's not the technology, right? Like if you, you, if you had this great technology, even like SpaceX, right? Like uh, General Hyten was saying what it took for SpaceX to do business with us embarrassed us in public, right? Because they were pushing so hard back against them, even though mm-hmm. now with hindsight, it's clear that SpaceX was on the right track and they have a capability that really drives down cost. So, so yeah, yeah. That was when there was a clear business case or like, it was so obvious that SpaceX needed to compete too. So it's like, you know, the business case is not always as clear as that, you know, sounds a little more nuanced and you need to get a vendor in to actually like start to see the, see their full potential. But no, I hear you on the IDIQs. That always frustrates me because sometimes too, they're over a five or even 10 year period. So whatever that amount of money is, that ceiling, it's also like spread out, you know, over a year. But it often, I think in articles is perceived as like, this was awarded like this year, just like all that money was just put on contract and awarded. So yeah, that's something you have to watch anytime you see the words IDIQ. Yeah. IDIQ ain't money in the bank. Nope. Uh, so the next one we got army green lights, advanced version of mixed reality goggle. And that's of course the Microsoft HoloLens and army integrated augmented integrated visual augmentation system. I would say IVAS, right? So, uh, so the service today announced that it awarded a task order to develop the 1.2 variant of the IVAS uh, based on the Microsoft HoloLens. The Army is receiving 10,000 units total, half for the 1.0 version and half for the 1.1. That incremental fielding will begin in September. Uh, to date, the Army has conducted over 30 soldier test events and 100 technical subtests with more than 1,000 soldiers contributing more than 100,000 hours of feedback to the IVAS. And so one of the things here is that the IVAS 1.0 system is about 3.4 pounds, excluding the radio, 
And about 2.4 pounds of that is on the head. But apparently they're going to be able to cut that down, you know, about a pound or so in, in the newer version. So again, like I've asked doing a lot of interesting things in terms of what you would hope that programs in the department are doing, right? Lots of testing, early testing, getting users involved, rapid iterations. But, you know, there was some consternation in terms of ruggedness. There was some consternation in terms of uh, soldiers getting kind of dizzy or with with the goggles on if they're wearing them for more than half an hour or so. And so Congress really kind of took an ax to their procurement money. Um, I think you had a little bit more information on that. Yeah, the, most of the money um, was the procurement money was transferred to the enhanced night vision goggle B, which actually was kind of interesting because it it was um, it's a little bit more capable than I gave it credit for. So I, I, I kind of see the the uh, the case there for that because it was um, uh, you know it, it actually does have the ability to give intel to. Uh, do targeting and, and things like that. So I, I was a little bit surprised. I thought it was more of your basic night vision goggle, but, uh, but yeah, looking into it, there's like a fact sheet you can sort of download online and, and it, it was a little bit more, more capable. And does I'm it, sure does it plug into like the, the ATAC kind of system. Well, it definitely gets Intel. So I, I imagine it does. I, I couldn't see some of those details, but it, it, it gives you some intel. It gives you some target, like ability to sort of look away and do activities. And there's like some auto automation in there for saying, okay, yeah, I still have, you know, I'm keeping eyes or if this thing moves or whatever I'm telling you about it. So yeah, I was a little bit surprised about, um, about that, but, um, but yeah, let me see here. I was just looking for the, um, for the exact, well, it's also good to have the competition, right? So it's like maybe IVAS, you know, lit a fire under under some of the vendors. So like, hey, we need to upgrade some of this stuff and really get our roadmap, you know, up to speed a little bit better. I don't know, but yeah. that's just speculation. It, it, no, it's speculation, but it's also good to have some competition because um, you know maybe the EMVGB can be can be upgraded a little bit uh, uh, to be more. You know, I, I do think IVAS is a, is a game changer in terms of the software, and I think that was a big part of the appeal was the ability to sort of do a lot of things. It was a lot more modular, a lot more upgradable. Um, not sure if the NVGB has those same capabilities, but, but yeah, the final numbers that came down was their, the army was requesting about 424 million total. Um, they ultimately got 334 million. So a 90, 90, 90 million cut off the top, but then, kind of more the the big substantial one was 300 million of that was actually moved to envgb so very little procurement or no procurement for ivas um, although they did move 40 million dollars to rdtne so uh so they're given they're keeping them alive uh i i presume with the recognition to get the 1.2 up to date um which will have some of those features that that maybe will address some of the soldiers concerns uh, and then they, they gave 10 million for some laser targeting thing on the EGMB. So it looks like, it looks like Congress is not sold completely on IVAS, but they do like these, this other thing and they're willing to actually, uh, direct some funding for upgrades to it. So, yeah, so it's some real competition there. And, 
um, you know, maybe having a mix of them in the field is the right, is the right thing to do, right? Like maybe some yeah. soldiers in some capacities that makes a lot more sense for them. And then some, maybe they, they get the benefit from the IBIS. Yeah. Good points. I, I think like this idea of having variance and in, in variety is, is kind of important because as we see with like Clayton Christensen, right? Like if you in, introduce a disruptive technology, it's just not going to be better on every single level than what has come before it, right? It's going to be better probably in some niche thing or something on the side. And, and then like it, but it might be very valuable there, but it might be on a different type of growth trajectory. Um, so you kind of have to let these things kind of play out in my view. Um, and the diversity is a good thing, not a bad thing. Yep. All right, Navy buys two loyal wingmen XQ58A Valkyrie drones for about 15.5 million. And so that's from Kratos, of course. That's part of the uh, Sky the now defunct Skyboard program that's kind of transitioning into uh, a different kind of pro- program. But my understanding is actually that it's the Marine Corps that is buying these things. So underneath the Navy, but um yeah, it's interesting that it's getting a little bit of play here. I I would be surprised if it's the Marine Corps personally, but maybe. Um, I was told by a Marine Corps person that it was, really? that it was them. He said that it was like, yeah, those those articles were wrong. <laughs> huh, it's interesting because the reason is that the Air Force, the 40th um, Flight Test Squadron, actually has two of them too. And they just like literally started flying in December. Um, and so and that was basically they were – they were basically doing experimentation to uh, basically identify the, what the right requirements would be for the combat collaborative aircraft. So I kind of saw this as the Navy sort of modeling that given the NGAD, NGAD sort of thing. And the fact that the Navy is saying that they also want to leverage manned unmanned teaming. I kind of thought they were buying them to just sort of play on what the air force is doing. Cause there is, I, I do understand that there's actually some pretty good coordination between the two, the air force and Navy um, and GAD programs. So yeah, so I, that's what I, that's what I kind of read into that. That's really interesting if that's the Marine Corps. Okay. So yeah, well, I just assumed that was the, if it was the Navy and it was NGAD, wouldn't it be classified and would we not, not be hearing about it? Well, I mean, there's, I think there's enough out there about the CCA. I think they're talking a little bit more about that. I mean, even, yeah, I think Secretary Kendall's even, you know, kind of come out and said, yeah, like we want, here's what we want it to be. And, you know, I want it to have these kind of characteristics and stuff. Why so. is CCA its own PEO? It seems like, all right. So in, in my understanding, um, the CCA program got $50 million to kind of keep the skyboard thing going. What, where is <laughs> Like, how does that constitute a PEO that got separated out? Well, I think it will have, it will, it will be getting a lot more money. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think, I think that's, you're right that it's kind of like, maybe it's maybe broken out right away, but um, I think they wanted NJAD to focus and be, be as focused as possible. Um, and then, yeah, it's also, it was, I agree with you. It's a little surprising they did it, but um, I think that will be, a complicated, you know, program in the future. Although they also are supposed to be fielding something quick. So I don't know if maybe they did it because the timelines were, were off. Um, you know, Kendall seemed to want to say, I want, you know, I want a low cost, a tradable, you know, uh, thing uh, that can, you know, basically get into the mission soon and sort of help our capacity issues. So if that's the case, maybe they broke it out just because they wanted 
you know, okay, here's your, here's your timeline for this. I want you to focus on getting this thing out in the 20s, 27s or whatever. The NGAD program can worry about their longer timeline. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I guess they'll have their, I mean, this thing isn't an ACAT one, so maybe they have their own acquisition authority, you know, delegated to some degree. But I'm sure Kendall will be very. <laughs> yeah, um... I was gonna say I don't know if that. Uh, I think <laughs> he's gonna be the program get, manager. <laughs> yeah, those programs are lots of attention. I'm sure they'll be given uh, weekly briefings. <laughs> uh, China developing its own version of JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, to counter U.S. And China here is pursuing new military construct known as multi-domain precision warfare to align its forces from cyber to space. And so it wants to be an information fluent force capable of dominating networks and bombarding targets from a sprawl of locations with a mix of weaponry. So great stuff. (laughs) I saw this thing. I think someone was like quoting this on Twitter and they're just like, um, hopefully they just spend five years just putting out little, you know, PDF documents of like little pictures of stuff and not actually doing anything. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a little bit harsh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no doubt China's showing us what they want to show us and some of it's capable, some of it's partially capable and some of it's, you know, probably, you know, yeah, not, not, not that sophisticated, but you know, this is definitely something though. I looking, you know, reading, you know, just Chinese literature on, on, on their investments in the past like ten years. This has been something that they've they've restructured their whole force around. Informatization is kind of a, a translated word that they use, and so this is definitely something that they've they've been looking at for a long time. JADC two. So I I didn't like the toner the tenor of this like like that China just now figured out they need JADC two. Yeah. I. I the, for one, they're ahead of the game, I think, on AI in the defense sector that may be behind it commercially. But uh, I think from a government perspective, they're probably ahead of us in the ability to manage large, large reams of data and sort of process it and things like that. They've really perfected that on the security side. Um, so, you know, this has been a focus of them. And it is interesting that, you know, the concept is basically that they're going to identify key vulnerabilities in, in our systems and then launch, you know, basically focus on those weak spots. And so that's why they need this. I think they realized, I think some of the war games that were conducted last week, um, you know, basically showed that we, we can defeat China, uh, you know, when, our, when we're operating, you know, at our full capacity, but we take a lot of losses. And so they see it as the only way to really win is to find our, our weak spots and then just pound the crap out of those. And so that's why they, they need this capability. So... I think for us, it's kind of nice that to see that they think this way because um, it shows that, you know, they have a lot of weak spots too. And maybe we should be uh, looking at it that same way. And I have not seen JADC2 put in that context. Um, and I kind of like that. I kind of like this idea of they call it systems destruction warfare, where it's like, you know, you, you don't focus on like killing all the ships and or shooting down all the planes you just destroy and you cripple the networks and the infrastructure and then everything goes away. <laughs> so, so they clearly see our networks as a key vulnerability. And so I think it just shows us where we need to focus our energies, but also shows us like um, maybe we need to think about uh, JADC2 in a slightly similar way um, because they also have a lot of weak spots. So, Yeah. Okay. It feels like, you know, SpaceX is potentially saving our, our 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 networking systems and 
we're not really doing all that much to my knowledge in terms of mesh networking as well, even though you do see those experiments out of task force 59. So um, yeah, maybe our commercial sector is kind of going to save us in terms of the things that the DOD just wants to throw money at, you know, platforms and not really thinking about what China's thinking about, which is systems destruction warfare. Like how do we, is JADC2 the answer to systems destruction warfare? I think it's JADC2 in combination with these things like uh, distributed maritime operations and agile combat employment, but we're not really seeing the follow through on, on that, on those other parts as well. Yeah. And I do, I, I do, there's a lot going on. And, and I think when, I think if we got the total story between ABMS convergence and overmatch, I think we would see that there are some good things happening. I think the question is, is there's so many policy issues and our ability to share with allies and, um, you know, data ownership, we have a lot of challenges. And so I still think we have real challenges or, or real issues getting to the place we want to be um, without, you know, a lot more work. And so I guess the question will be is wh how long will it take? Um, you know, mesh networks are definitely being talked about. There's a lot of experiments. There's a lot of exercises that are trying things out. Will we have a fully functioning one that can, <laughs> right? Like where, where the Chinese vision is that could actually say, oh, hey, our Intel found a, a weak spot uh, you know, this airfield's undefended and they're sending all the aircraft this way or whatever. Um, hey, if we if we strike now, we can take that out and that will set them back for the next week and we can regroup. Hey, you know, like that kind of war war thinking, can we get JADC2 to operate that effectively to get all the right data in the right places at the right time to create the effects we need? And I think, I think personally, we still have a lot of work to do. So even though there is a lot of good stuff going on at the same time, but... China's yeah. naval mothership for aerial drones looks to be operational from the war zone. China's PLAN, People's Liberation Army Navy, appears to have an unusual catamaran drone mini carrier uh, that they put into service for an experimental naval training force. Um, and it's supposed to simulate enemy drone swarms as well as other threats, high volume anti-ship strikes, distributed electronic warfare attacks. Uh, so there's a bunch of like, uh, video of this stuff in, in terms of the types of different unmanned systems, including a tandem rotor uh, unmanned helicopter kind of thing uh, that they're they're working on. Um, and, and it ends up here just like U.S. military officials have been increasingly outspoken about the threat that drones, including lower end commercial types, pose to its force abroad and at home, even outside of traditional conflicts. And so it's just like, but but, you know, oversight type folks do not want to move forward, right? Or maybe the services don't want to kind of like pull money out of their legacy platforms to go do it. But like you hear people saying, this is a threat. China is operationalizing in some ways, you know, things that we should have already been working on in terms of naval motherships for aerial drones, but also like surface vessels and unmanned vessels. Um, and it's just like, the U.S. has no plan to kind of go do this for another decade, you know, like if it's happening, right? Well, the bizarre thing is it almost makes more sense for the U.S. than it does for China right. in some ways because of the the, dis the tyranny of distance. Um, you think we would want to have, you know, <laughs> these types of ships where we could deploy things or at least we would be experimenting with them. But so far, I don't think we've seen 
anything even in development that would that that we're pursuing so i think you're right we're just pursuing you know flara you know same helicopter type upgrades you know the same types of ships that we've always had some usb experimentation but very you know small scale um so yeah um uas is hopefully the collaborative combat you know stuff will will turn out some uh, really really you know robust capability but really we need stuff on the lower end but think about the con ops of even the collaborative i I mean think about those con ops it's like well to be safe it's like it's mum team man on man teaming so like the pilot and these these types of systems are really at the center and the collaborative combat aircraft those those unmanned or autonomous systems those are just kind of like tethered to you and they're just kind of like these ancillary kind of things rather than like no, like this might be the future, like, right. Maybe go a little bit harder on that, but it's hard to make that sale. Um, and I'll just move in. We're running out of time here. Turkish defense agency signs contract for ULAQ USV procurement. So that's the first USV developed by the Turkish defense industry. It completed trials in 2022. Uh, they're going into production of the anti-surface warfare and port security variants. They're also I'm going to have a new configuration for anti-submarine warfare, and they're putting all sorts of different types of uh, sensors and effectors on these types of things. Um, Again, it's like Turkey has no problem, you know, moving forward with this stuff. I'm not really sure why the United States does. Yeah, they've actually got uh, it kind of interesting. They got got a remote control weapon system on there, 12.7 millimeter. They got some tactical missile, uh, missile control system laser guided, got some anti-submarine rockets, got some lightweight torpedoes, uh, some pretty advanced sonar capabilities. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it almost makes too much sense. It's kind of what we've been talking about. So <laughs> too much. Um, uh, uh, hey, one, one last thing yeah. on the UAS uh, swarms up. The one positive thing is DARPA really has been leaning forward on some of this. And, and the one thing that did come to mind after I had finished what I said was the, uh, the experiment where they were dropping things out of like the C-130s. Um, gremlins, and, and I think that's what, what it was. Gremlins, yeah, and then recovering them. So, you know, so yeah, at least DARPA, <laughs> we might not have a program of record, but at least DARPA is still, uh, still playing in that space. So hold yeah. on for DARPA. It's almost just like, all right, use your 6.3 money and Let's just be like, if acquisition's not going to do it, you do it. You know? Yep, exactly. And and Dar- like Congress has no problem just funneling money over to DARPA, but they do I know, have big I know. problems funneling it over to the acquisition people. So DARPA's been doing the swarming stuff and things like that. So I'm with, I'm I'm right with you. I'm like, yeah, let's just let them advance it until it's like right ready to go, and then we'll we'll uh, turn that into a procurement. <laughs> New Army light tank under construction. Of course, that's uh, General Dynamics Mobile Protective Firepower, military acquisition program. Uh, it's going to be the first combat vehicle to join the force in nearly four decades. Uh, they expect to spend about $6 billion over the course of the procurement process. Total life cycle cost $17 billion. Going to buy 504 vehicles. Um, inventory that for 30 years. So kind of a traditional thing, but they did it pretty fast. Um, looks like it's uh, going pretty well. So uh, we'll, we'll probably hear a little bit more about this in the coming you know, months. This was definitely needed because the, uh, the M1 Abrams and, and, and some of those, uh, those legacy tanks were so heavy um, 
that they couldn't even like couldn't even go on the European rail system. So this is actually going to be really good for it could go into C seventeen, I think, right? MPF. Um, probably. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it seems like it's light enough. It, yeah, that, that that would make sense. But they don't. It's yeah. not. It's not going to have like the turbo jet kind of thing, right? right? It's not going to have a jet engine in it. So, um, well, I don't think it does. But but yeah, this this, this is really good because we do need. We do need this capability, um, you know. I think I think we're seeing in the European theater in particular. Um, so this will be welcomed by the Europeans who do not want their railroad systems to completely destroyed because of uh, an M1 Abrams uh, breaking all the railroads. Fairly accounting for weapons in Ukraine. So 50 billion provided to Ukraine will be under politically motivated investigation by the Republican House, with a strong bent towards isolationism. Still understanding all of that political machinations, it is reasonable expectation for Congress to investigate the war spending. And so uh, Ronald Marx here, who's writing in The Hill, kind of gives some some pinpoints or some things to think about. Um, you'll never have an accounting system for all of the weapons purchased, even like in the U.S. if you have that that done pretty well in terms of like the accounting. And there's still issues with the... the uh, um, the audit, of course, uh, but it's doubtful that the users of these weapons in Ukraine are going to know there's not an Amazon supply chain verification. So don't expect receipts. It'll be impossible to determine who used what and where. And don't be surprised if some enterprising locals inside and outside Ukraine military made money on selling the weapons to others besides Ukraine Ukrainians, including China, Russia, and Iran. So uh, I think he's trying to set us up because we know, like, okay, fifty billion dollars. You're, you know, we're probably talking about a significant fraction of uh, of Ukraine's GDP is kind of being funneled over to them. And uh, yeah, you know, there's going to be a lot of graft and a lot of bad things happening. And uh, I don't, I don't think you know the current Congress really wants to hear anything about that. And maybe the Republicans are you know, want to bash their, their political enemies by, you know, snuffing all of this stuff out. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to make all of it. I mean, of course it's going to have to happen. We, we saw a lot of crazy stuff going to happen in Afghanistan and Iraq as well. Uh, but, but yeah. Well, I, I, I yeah, I kind of disagree. There's a couple things I disagree with. One, I'm not sure that we are not going to be able to tell what, what we give them. I mean, that's, we, we, we do have fairly precise accounting on what they're getting. I mean, cause we're, having to take stuff out of our inventory. So I think that can be tracked pretty well. Um, yeah, I think once it gets into country though, it's going to, it's going to go where it's going to go. Oh, right. Like there's going to yeah, be, yeah. Mo- there's going to be like money disbursements and then there's going to be like, here's like, I'm literally giving you these munitions and these systems. Right. But we're not going to know what happens to them once they get into the hands of the Ukrainians. They're not going to have time to like, Oh, we're, we're going to have like all this paper trail of everything and where it went to like, we're, we're in a war. <laughs> right. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if on the Intel side, if we are not tracking some of the higher end systems that we give them, because, well, I think two things. I'm a little skeptical that the Ukrainians, even locals, would deal with China, Russia or Iran at this point. Now, maybe yeah, Russia was war, a little bit interesting. Like, you're going to yeah. sell it to your enemy? I mean, maybe. yeah, I think I think they would hang you up outside the local local town hall if if you if somebody tried to sell especially the more advanced weapon systems that are actually needed for defending missiles from cities and things like that. Um, most of the stuff we've given them is more on the unsophisticated side. They're starting to get more higher end stuff. They're getting so Bradleys the Hi- now. They're getting Bradleys. I mean, the HIMARS, I, I cannot see them selling HIMARS systems. Maybe after the war, if things calm down, maybe some corruption would happen or something. But 
as of right now, I don't think anybody in the Ukrainian military wants to give any of those prized systems up. And I suspect the U.S. were keeping tabs on on those systems. So I'm not I don't quite buy this, but um, fair enough that once things get into theater, especially with weapons uh, or munitions, yeah, it's going to go. It's going to go where it's needed. Right. Like right now, the Ukrainians are in a fight for their lives. They're going to send it where it's needed. So, yeah, but don't I mean, it, just a couple of years ago. It, when you look at the uh, those like political indexes of most corrupt countries in the world, Ukraine yeah. is like yeah, number two <laughs> most, yeah, pretty much it was like top ten most corrupt country yeah, in the world, yeah. and no, it's, it's hard to yeah. snuff out, you know, like okay, how much of that was before the Maidan stuff, and how much of that was after? But there's no doubt there's a culture of corruption. Sure, there. sure, absolutely. Um, all right, let's move on from that because we are not a political talk show here. Uh, <laughs> all right. I trust, I trust the Ukrainians a little bit all right, right now. <laughs> U.S. Navy approves full reproduction of Sikorsky CH-53K helicopter. The objective is 200 aircraft. It has a 27,000 pound external load, 110 nautical miles. That's triple the external load of the legacy CH-53E. Um, so they just declared initial operational capability. Back in April of 2022, uh, they're going to produce. Uh, they're going to try to produce about 20 helicopters annually, and of course, a diverse network of more than 200 suppliers across 34 states. So, <laughs> smart, very smart. <laughs> uh, these do seem like pretty useful. I mean, you you do need this kind of thing. I mean, once again, though, you know, I'm not sure the survivability in some yeah. of the theaters that the Marine Corps is planning to operate, but um, you know, there probably is there probably is a place for this, especially like unloading from some of the ships. Uh, the fact they can do triple, I mean, that, that means less trips. So less, you know, less threat or less, uh, um, you know, less times you have to be exposed. So yeah. Well, yeah. less, less trips, but bigger, juicier target. Bigger, and, juicier target. And, and yeah. when that target gets hit, it's like a much bigger, you know, operational loss. I mean, the heat coming off this thing too. I mean, it must just be like just smoking, especially, if, at full load. I mean, that's got to be, it's got to be insane. I yeah. mean, it's like an engineering marvel to a degree. I think they had to it basically is, yeah. redesign the whole freaking thing because uh, they had to add like so many composites because it was just getting too heavy to do what it had to do. But, but, but again, like engineering marvel versus like operational utility. It, so the survivability, like the cost to survivability effectiveness kind of ratio is is kind of the the concern there for a Marine Corps that doesn't have all that much money and is spending a bunch of money on CH-53Ks, F-35Bs, and it's trying to do this uh, force modernization for Force Design 2030 at the same time. Which, I mean, when we go back and we talk about the joint piece, I mean, this goes back to the fact that the Marines have always felt like they need their own stuff because they can't rely on the other services. So you know, um, someday every, like, we'll yeah, never get over Guadalcanal. We'll never get over it. And uh, I think that's, <laughs> that's why you're seeing this versus them buying, you know, Chinooks or the new, you know, new army, uh, systems. Yeah. Yeah. It was, there was someone, um, that was like posting some stuff that was just like the Navy, like it was like all the Navy deaths from, from like trying to, uh, stay in the fight at Guadalcanal was like the, the Navy didn't actually abandon you know the marine corps even if that was the narrative so mm. I, I don't know enough about that situation but you know everyone has their perspectives but in afghanistan they did you know they they didn't want to operate joint they wanted to have their own kandahar was 
their area of operation and they have their own jets and their own support structures. So they're their yeah, own army essentially. They are. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Yeah. Let's, let's move fast to the end here. Navy successfully demonstrated unmanned cargo delivery systems for ship at sea. And so that's the Martin UAV from shield AI. Um, that's the VBAT and then skyways air transportation. It's interesting here. They said, uh, Transport cargo weighing less than 50 pounds accounts for more than 90% of Navy logistics deliveries. So that's going to be yeah. what they're kind of tacking off there, which kind of makes sense. Um, it would be, it's not quite, you know, having a, a Navy catamaran with, you know, UAV, you know, operations, but you know, they're, they're at least trying to get there. So, uh, and it, and it can deliver over 200 nautical miles. So these pretty small, pretty inexpensive uh, UAVs delivering, you know, 50 pounds or less of payload, you know, can probably do a lot of the workhorse. So it'd be interesting to see the kinds of like, what, what kind of cost effectiveness that is. Yeah, no, it's definitely, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a number of companies in this space. And I think there's like a lot of commercial applicability, which, which I kind of like uh, for this. So uh, yeah, it makes, um, it makes a lot of sense that we're going to need to be able to be more nimble and, you know, keep, especially when you get into the UAV space, right. Or the UA USB space where, um, you're trying to resupply, you know, maybe, um, a tender or something where you're, um, you know, whatever, replenishing, replenishing different, different types of vessels that you, uh, um, you know, remotely. And so maybe you don't want to send a, a huge, huge ship out there to resupply, just send out a fleet of, uh, of these, uh, unmanned cargo delivery systems. <laughs> Uh, it, it appears one of the things though is like Amazon. They they were kind of talking about the UAV delivery that that seemed to be a lot harder for them than than initially expected. So yeah, we'll see on the commercial front. But good to good to have uh, um, some overlap there. Finn Cantieri, CEO, talks U.S. frigates vision for Europe's naval sector. Uh, they use they aim to use more pre-construction on land at Marionette. Um, building these modules and adding them to the vessel, less work at the docks and more work on land. They're saying that's a lot more efficient. They invested more than 300 million in the Wisconsin shipyards uh, to get to the Navy's requirement of two frigates per year. Uh, the key problem here is the availability of skilled staff, which is a big bottleneck to the production. They want to increase headcount 700 um, over the next three to four years to 2,600 folks. Um, so there's probably a lot of attrition going on, especially at the the types of age uh, of folks retiring out. Fincantieri's unusual blend of work um, of defense platforms accounts for 29% of its 2021 revenue. Cruise ships have uh, have been a big aspect of that, but they're trying to create synergies between this. So that's actually that's also pretty interesting. I mean, I don't think Marionette has any cruise ships. I would probably say not, but, you know, Fincantieri as a company, you know, that's pretty interesting that 29% is, is their defense platforms, but they have a really significant commercial um, shipping. Yeah. I, I thought the synergies piece was kind of interesting because they talked about um, that the um, military vessels learned more about like how to build comfortable quarters, which I thought was yeah. an interesting <laughs> lesson there. Uh, but then the cruise ships learned how to like, from the military side, learned how to make their ships more silent, which is never really thought about a cruise ship needing to be silent. But I guess it actually makes sense if you're coming into, you know, ports that um, 
you know, people don't want these noisy ships sitting outside. Like some of these cruise ships really are pretty close to like residential areas. It's kind of amazing. Like in, if you've ever been to Venice, when a cruise ship comes in, it's like right there. So I guess it kind of makes sense that they don't want to be super loud. But yeah, I wouldn't have thought that. Well, that's all we got time for a day. Thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.